So uh, how many times have you heard something and you said, that's too good to be true? What? Why are you, guys, why are you looking at me like that, Roger? <laughs> that's too good to be true. Uh, you know, it could be, what, a promise on a commercial uh, telemarketer. I always love it. You know, give us your information and we'll give you a free something or other. And I'm like, what? Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's too good to be true. And we are born into a world where we're just brought up to believe that. Uh, as kids, we have all of these dreams and fantasies. They get shot down real quick. And, uh, and then... You know, like, so we, as we approach into adulthood, we uh, find ourselves not really believing much of anything. And, and then if you become a born-again believer, you're told in the scripture, these promises from God, of things that are, I mean, they go beyond the stuff that you believed when you were a kid. And the, the, the fantasies or, or fairy tales or stories, you know, what God says of himself and what he's done for us and will do for us and indeed is doing right now is exceeding abundantly beyond. And that's how it's described in the scripture. It's stuff that hasn't entered into our minds. And that's what today is about. Today is about believing the stuff that God says and the reason why we should. Uh, we're looking into Second Thessalonians, and Paul mentions there that the faith of the Thessalonians have increased. And so for the last couple of classes, we've been looking at faith, you know, what faith is and how does it increase. And today what I want to do is look at the things we're supposed to believe. We could, you could approach this study in many ways, and you could approach it by looking at what faith is. We've done a bit of that. Uh, and you could look at, actually, manifestations of faith in those who are in the Scripture, Old Testament and New. We haven't really done that. But what I want to look at today are a couple of promises that God makes to us and then challenge us, myself included, to believe them. And if we believe them, Boy, things are going to really, if they haven't, if you haven't believed them already with your heart and soul, things are going to really change in your life. So let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll open up in prayer, thanking God for His Word, thanking Him that we, we actually do have something to believe in a risen Savior who sits at the right hand of God. Uh, and that is something, if you believe that, you're... Uh, believing in something very incredible. And, uh, and so with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word and for all that you do and all that you are. We thank you for your promises, promises that you have made thousands of years ago and are true every single day. You've given us promises of the past, promises of the future, and promises for the present. Today, Father, we look at the promises that you've given us to the church that are incredible, but they are for today. They are for every one of us today. And we want you, Father, to challenge us to believe them, uh, to know what it means to believe them, the manifestation in our lives of not just saying we believe them, but actually believing them, so that our way of thinking, our, our lifestyle, everything that we are, changes more and more into a heavenly and in and a, and a way that pleases you. And so, Father, through your Spirit, we ask for enlightenment, and we ask in Christ's name, amen. So, uh, Christians should not be living as though the promises of God were too good to be true. And I do mean the promises that God has concerning us and that he has of himself. Uh, God tells us things about himself. And they also seem too good to be true. And, you know, we we'd say like all of us here, and I know that we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, 
uh, we believe that the Scripture is completely inspired by God the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing in the Scripture that we would say we don't believe. But what we're talking about here, and exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians, is the faith that has application to life, and that if the, just a few promises that we'll look at today, if we believed them, uh, our lives would manifest that faith in a manner that Christ manifested his faith. So, is it all too good to be true, or do we have solid reasons to believe in who God is, just as he says that he is? Um, do we believe that he loves us like he says he does? Do we believe that he's concerned for us uh, in the manner that he says that he is? Today we want to see some of the many reasons why our faith should be pure. What I mean by that is completely depending upon setting itself on everything that God says to be true. And that is a purity of faith. It's a clear manifestation of, of faith, and that clear manifestation is endurance. Uh, an endurance day in and day out in which I possess peace and joy, no matter what comes my way, and that I believe. And sometimes it's white-knuckle struggle, sometimes it's easy. It's just, but in all cases, in every day and everything I face, that I have faith in exactly what God says is true about life and my place in it. Which is an important place. Now, is it, is it like, am I like a, a uh, what's the term, I'm like a linchpin or something like that? Am, am I like the important part? No. If I get taken out, if you get taken out, church moves on. Uh, even this church would move on. But, you know, any, the whole plan of God moves on. He doesn't need us. And so, you know, are we unimportant? Or... Are we actually quite important and important to God and important in such a way that he's pursuing us with goodness and, uh, <clears throat> and, do we believe, and do we have faith in that? If God sees himself in us, and what I mean by that is he's already in you if you're a believer. But what I mean by that is that he sees his life in you. In other words, your countenance, and by the way, our facial countenance does display what we're thinking so often. Some people are very good at having a poker face. I'm not, and most people I know are not. But, uh, and I like that about people. You know, anyway, not that that matters, what I like. But our manifestation of life, if it's like Christ, yeah, God sees himself in us. And that's what God loves. God is the only truly correct egotist that there is. He's the only one who can truly be an egotist and that it's actually right. Uh, and God loves seeing himself in us. And that means our manner, our way, the way that we live. Uh, we've begun 2 Thessalonians. We've seen the theme of worthiness in chapter 1. Uh, what is worthy? Worthy of our calling. Walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Worthy means value. And it's what God, we looked at what God values and what we should value. Uh, we looked at, in Sunday, we looked at the family and the home that Jesus has restored to us that we lost from the garden. And then now we look at faith. And for a couple of classes, we've been looking at what faith is how faith increases. What we saw in the increasing of faith is that Christ told us to follow him, uh, to be servants of him day in and day out for our whole lives. And your faith will increase. Uh, and you know, he didn't say that explicitly, but he said it in response to the question by the disciples or really the demand that they gave to him, which was to increase their faith. So our main passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. And there's the word worthy, um, as only fitting or as only worthy, because your faith is greatly enlarged. I guess we, we could really stop there, but just to give you a preview, because the next thing we're going to look at is love. And the love of each of you toward one another grows even greater. 
And I'm sure I started my study on love. It's like I, every time I do this, I start it brand new. I don't look at any old notes or anything. I just start off like I've never studied it before. And I love doing that. It's uh, And I've already, you know, I'm so glad that I, because I was going to blow right past this. I'm like, everybody knows what faith is. Everybody knows what love is. How dumb am I? God said, shut up, dummy, and teach them. Because we need to look at them clearly. They're foundational issues uh, of the Christian life, faith and love. And, uh, and so we'll see love next. And then he says, therefore, in verse 4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance. And that's the third thing we're going to look at is perseverance. Which faith and love are going to give you perseverance. Which is exactly what Paul is thankful for here in the Thessalonians. Their faith is greatly enlarged. And their uh, love is to one another. Uh, it says grows even greater. It's a Greek word that means it superabounds. Uh, so um, we've defined faith. We listened to how the Lord told us. Well, in response to the apostles that said increase our faith. Uh, Jesus told them that they had to forgive people who purposely put stumbling blocks in their path seven times a day, and that if they repented seven times, that you were to forgive them. And the apostles were like, especially growing up in the world that they did, you don't do that. You don't forgive people that many times, especially when they purposely do it. If someone has purposely tripped you up seven times and repented every time, were they sincere in their repentance? Christ says, you don't even evaluate that. If they repent, you forgive. They're like, yeah, right. Increase our faith. Well, of course, you know, we would all say that. And then Christ told them, look, be faithful to me as a humble servant for the rest of your life. And and that's what he says. And know, humble, know that you're not worthy. You never were worthy. So just serve me, serve me for the rest of your life as an unworthy, happy servant. And we say, well, uh, uh, okay. And that's, that's in response to the question of increase our faith. And, you know, when he says it like that, or I guess when I say it like that, it sounds like a sentence. And I mean a prison sentence. But we have to discover, and that's what we're going to look at today, is we have to discover how this statement, be a faithful, humble servant to me for the rest of your life, how that statement is the greatest of blessings to mankind. We have to make the jump to that realm of thinking because that is the realm of Christianity. And uh, Christ was the one who did it. When Christ came into the world as the Son of God, what did he do? He was a humble, faithful servant. Humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. So rather than look at the acts of faith, which we could, we're going to look at some promises. Go to Jeremiah 32. I actually went to an Old Testament promise for the purpose of... um, It states the promise that I'm after here uh, succinctly, whereas when you look for this very same promise in the New Testament, it's kind of written out more in an instruction type. But here in Jeremiah, it's a promise of the future, and it's definitely a millennial passage to Israel. So if you're thinking that, you're dead on. So we'll, say, well, and, you know, we'll see the, how it applies to us. So look at Jeremiah 32, 38. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And he's talking about Israel being, or really Judah, being captured by the Babylonians. Jeremiah is very clear about this, that they're going to be deported and, and be in captivity for 70 years. That's the, uh, the, um, the captivity, the exile in Babylon. Uh, but then God promises through the same prophet that they're going to return. And not only return after the 70 years, but for all of eternity, the nation of Israel is going to possess this land in tremendous blessing by God. And so that's what's here. He says in verse 38 again, they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. 
that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with, notice the phraseology, my heart and with all, with all my heart and with all my soul. I think God sounds so human here with all that, you know, that's stuff that we say. Excuse me. I'm going to do that with all my heart and soul. And God yet is saying this of himself. Now, this everlasting covenant, uh, which is Jeremiah started to write about or speak about in chapter 31, is the new covenant. Uh, and these promises are to the church. But that doesn't mean, and I am no advocate of uh, covenant theology, nor of the fact that the church, or not the fact, I shouldn't say, the theory that the church replaces Israel. These, these promises will be fulfilled to the nation of Israel in the future, in the millennial reign of Christ. It's just that the spiritual aspects of these blessings, because in here there's spiritual, there's spiritual blessings. If you keep reading and, and uh, cross-reference it with Ezekiel, you see a bunch of physical blessings as well, material blessings. We're not promised the material, but Christ, when he handed us the cup, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And the things that you see here are the things that have been given to us in the church. It's a partial fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, I understand not everybody believes that, and that's fine. I don't argue with anybody about it. Some believe that there are two new covenants, one for Israel and one for us. I do not. So, with that all out of the way, what God has given to the church is this very thing. A promise that he is to do us good and not harm. So the first one here, the first promise that's here is God will not turn away from doing good to you. This promise is that he will keep on doing good to you. He will not turn away. Do you see anything in here of, well, if you're faithful, I won't turn away. Or if you're following me, I won't turn away. It's, it's a flat out, I'm not going to turn away. The promise is that he'll keep doing good to you. So God will do good to me while I reject him? Yes. That good may be manifested in discipline. But God will always pursue you. When things are going bad, that doesn't mean that God has stopped doing you good. But yet, what's our initial response when things go bad? When things don't go according to plan? When things don't go our way? Is that we think this is bad, but it's not. God has all things under control. It more likely means that God is shifting things around in your life so that he can do more good to you than you can imagine. He's got plans, and his plans for the future we don't know. And this is really a great definition of faith. Faith has, you know, there's many ways you can look at it, but one of the definitions of faith is that I have assurance of things not seen. You know, I, I know things are going to happen. I have hope, and, and hope is another aspect of this, is that hope looks to the future and says, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be awesome. That God is doing things, shifting things around, moving things around. Uh, God works together all things for good to those who love him, in Romans chapter 8. Now, let's say you don't love God as you should. God is pursuing you so that you will. It happens to every single one of us. God is moving things around in your life so that you'll see your need to love him. But not love him just like, yeah, I admire God. I think he's great. You know, I think he's pretty cool. It goes far deeper than that. That to actually truly love God from the very core of your heart and that you know, as the Lord said, if you love anyone more than me, you're not worthy of me. And to have that level of love. Now, for a lot of Christians, their, their commitment in love to God is not that much. And God is pursuing them. 
Now, God is going to be pleased when you prosper. That's the thing. Uh, God is pleased with us when we prosper. God is pleased with us when we walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He's not asking us, uh, making us jump through hoops or something like that for no particular reason. What God is doing is giving us his, his very self. He's given us his very life. He has given it. And we think, well, and oftentimes we think if we, if we really uh, uh, want to uh, pursue God, and we really want to be this image of Christ that he has called us to be, we can get the thought in our mind that God is like patiently waiting for us to get to a certain, say, mile marker in this journey, and that he's waiting for you to get there, and then he can bless you, whereas that's not the case, that God has already blessed us. And what God is wait, not waiting for, well, I guess in a way waiting for, but what God is looking for is faith. Because when you believe these things, that's when the changes really happen. I, mean, I could set about doing all kinds of things that I think are going to impress God, but if I don't really put my faith in the fact that they are truly good, that they are truly righteous, that they are truly important, that they are truly beautiful, I'm just doing stuff. And that's not what God is after. God has not made us spectators in life. God put us right in the thick of it and said, live it. And that's how you can figure out how God says, you can do nothing, I have to do everything. So then we say, as humans, we think we're pretty smart. We say, well, all right, go ahead and do everything, and I'll just sit here and watch. And God says, no, that's... I do everything, but I have made it so that you are intricately involved, a major player in life, and that you live the life. So, I mean, you could be someone with a, uh, with a video game, right, with a video controller, and you're controlling the little guy on the screen. You're not living that life. <laughs> and so they... You know, they made this other video uh, uh, when I was down in Houston. Uh, Scott Griffith, he has one of those uh, virtual reality things. I put that on, and you're in the video game. I'd never, I've not done anything like that ever. I almost threw up. It made me so sick. You get really disoriented. But it truly, your whole world goes away, and you are in a video game. Everything was three-dimensional. It was freaky. But even that, say now, say everything gets like that. Am I really living that? Well, the people I'm, in, you know, the people I'm interacting with, or the little animals, or whatever they were, the little guys that I was shooting at, um, they're not real. They're pixels. What has God done to us? Put us in life, not just life. Because if you're not a born-again believer, you're not in that life. That's a whole different show. The show that we're in is called eternal life. And that is a sphere of divinity. And that's the blessing he's given us in the church. Put us right in it. And so he's saying to us, live it. Don't observe it. There's a lot of people observing it. Saying, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. What are you doing? Get in it and live it. And to live it, you've got to do it. So Christ would say, you've got to follow me. You've got to pick up your cross and follow me. Hence, when the disciples said, look, we need more faith, he said, you need faith of a mustard seed. Just You need a tiny bit. And then you need to be my servant. Your whole life. And when you do that... You will figure it out. So, we're idiots. Um, <laughs> we're elected idiots. Sounds like our government. Uh, we are. And so, when we get elected into this, even when we learn about it, we're like, uh, we still can't do it. And so, as Psalm 119 states, many other passages state the same thing. We've talked about this a lot. In Thessalonica, they are suffering immensely. Psalm 119.65 says, uh, the, the psalmist says, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 
if every one of us are going to require a level of suffering, the level of which God perfectly knows, that's why you can't say, well, they're suffering less than me. What gives God? Like Peter says, what about John? None of your business. Right? God is given. We ha- that's another aspect of faith, that the amount of suffering in my life is perfect for me. It's just what I need. So, it demands thank you to the Lord, not complaint. Oh, I forgot my book. Well, that's okay. Uh, Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, said Joseph, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. His brothers threw him into a pit. Uh, It was Judah's idea to kill him. Judah was like, let's kill him. And the oldest brother, Reuben, said, uh, let's not. And then they threw him in a pit, and then they sold him off. Ironically, not so ironically, that it's Judah at the end, uh, in Genesis somewhere around 46 or 47, that Judah is willing to lay down his life to save his brother Benjamin. Judah comes full circle. He was willing to give away his life of his brother Joseph and then laid some years go by and Judah is willing to give his own life for his brother Benjamin. What happened to the man? He wasn't a good man. God changed him. And that's what God is in the business of doing. God is in the business of changing us and changing us in such a way that no matter what comes our way, we have the faith to deal with it. We'll know what to do. Because we're, gonna, we're following the Lord. That's what faith is. Faith is, the, faith is the willingness to do anything that the Father commands. Now, willingness doesn't mean you're always going to get it right. That's true also. So faith also believes in the grace of God that when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. All right, promise number two in Jeremiah 32 is that God rejoices. We're still there, so we can see in verse 41, I will rejoice over them to do them good. Um, So, you know, we can look over this kind of quickly because God already said, I'm going to do them good. But then he says, I will rejoice in doing them good. And that means that God is actually enjoying this. What does God enjoy? Right. And that is to prosper us. God enjoys prospering us. So we have to ask ourselves, do we believe that? If God enjoys prospering us, then God is pursuing us to prosper us. And we can't prosper without faith. We need to believe the things that are and, and walk by faith and not by sight. So the Lord actually enjoys prospering us. Do you believe that? In Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, the Lord says, The Lord will again rejoice over you for good. Which he says to Israel. So God is not waiting for us, but he's pursuing us. Go to Psalm 23. I, get a, I know we all know this verse, but we're going to another passage in Psalms, so I don't know why I'm apologizing for telling you to turn to Psalms. Psalm 23, verse 6. Last line. In my own, and for me personally, in my own desire, and if it's happening to me, I know it's happening to others. In my own desire to be like Christ, which I want to be more than I ever have, I am constantly making the mistake that I think God is waiting for me to reach a certain level, and then, and then something's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but He's waiting for me, and I, of course. You know, if you, if you truly desire to be Christ-like, that's when you really see all the parts in you that aren't. 
It's for the pe- people who don't care about this. They know nothing about sin. They know nothing about it. People who don't want to be holy know nothing about sin. Because they're not resisting it. You know, you don't, as C.S. Lewis says so well, or wrote so well, that you don't know the strength of an army unless you fight it. You have to fight it. And when you fight it, you find out, well, for yourself, you find out that really the areas in yourself that are not up to par. And there are a lot. And so you think to yourself, wow, you know, I thought God was okay with me before, but now that I'm really trying to be like God, well, I can see that he's uh, more disappointed than I thought. And so you get this mindset. You can get this mindset. And I'm amazed at how easily a mindset can change and how quickly and easily a mindset can change from peace to stress to worry and fear. Just one little thought can do it. And you might get the idea that God's waiting for you to reach a certain place. But then you realize, and you must be reminded of this from God's Word, and that's why we keep going back to it, is that um, He's pursuing you. He's not waiting for you. He's pursuing you. And it's, it's not that God is only pursuing the good Christians, whoever they are. Uh, he is pursuing all Christians. That's the promise of the blessing. That's why I went to the blessing in the Old Testament of, of Jeremiah 32. Because it's a, it's a promise of the new covenant that God was going to do good to all and that he was going to give us one heart. And you go back to... Uh, sorry, go to Ezekiel 36. He says he's going to put his spirit within us and he's going to give us a soft heart and we're going to respond to him and that we're going to learn and follow him. And, you know, that's the promise. The promise was or and now is uh, a fulfilled spiritual life. And what the problem with us is not that we're not either smart enough because seriously, it is the faith of a mustard seed. I think I'm starting to understand that. The the faith of a mustard seed, and the seed will grow, but the mustard seed represents all that is really true. Like, what is true about the way of life? What is true about Jesus Christ? What is true about the Father? What is true about the earth? What is true about the universe? What is true? What is ultimately true about these things? And when you see what that is, you only need a little bit. But you've hooked on to it. You, know, you put your eyes on that which is truly pure. And that can grow. What happens with us is we get a muddled idea of what is true. In other words, my life is a partial submission. My life, try again, is a partial submission to God and some of my submission to me. Don't you understand? I'm not supposed to be perfect. I'm human. So I'm not supposed to give my whole life over to God and see you've missed the mustard seed. You missed it. You're looking at some other seed. Some other seed that's got a little bit of Christianity in it. But it's not pure. The purity is. And it's only small is that Christianity is theocentric. That's a fancy theological word. Or Christocentric. Theology, sorry, uh, Christianity, I can't even say it, but I don't have to because I have the faith of a mustard seed. No. Christianity is based on Christ. And what else? Nothing. Nothing else. So when I say, well, I got Christ in part of my life, and I, you know, it, here's, here's the thing I'm getting at is we have to understand by faith that whether it's true right now or not, that my whole life has to go into faith in that mustard seed. My whole life. 
as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a worker, as a, a member of a congregation, as a pastor, as a deacon, as an anybody else, as, as all of us. My whole life has to be given to the will of God. End of story. Now, if that's not true right now, that is not near as much of a problem as is not committing to it. It's the partial commitment that has made believers not grow in faith. That's why a brand new believer can grow in faith way past someone who's been even studying doctrine day in and day out for 30 years, can bypass them in, in, in such a short period of time because they found the mustard seed and they're committed to it. And that's what faith is. Faith is a complete commitment to one. There's only one. Our Lord. And God, so I said, wow, you know that? Okay. How do I get there? Well, God's pursuing you. God is pursuing you to change your heart to that very thing. Because not all of us, I mean, I guess there are some who figured that out early in Christianity. I think that there are. I think that most of us don't. I think that for most people, Christianity is a game where you're, you're making deals with God. You know, I'll, I'll give you some of this if I get to have some of that. And God's like, I don't make deals. I don't make deals. You've you got to give me it all. And I am going to hunt you down until you do. Uh, one teacher explained it like this. I love this explanation. God is like a highway patrolman pursuing you down the interstate with lights flashing and siren blaring to get you to stop. But it's not to give you a ticket. It's to give you a message so good that it couldn't wait until you got home. I thought it was pretty cool. Uh, we deserve the ticket, right? We deserve jail. We deserve solitary confinement for the rest of our lives. Uh, but God is hunting us down to give us something good, not something bad. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he is hunting you down consistently and constantly to give you something good. So that, you know, and we'll say, we'll close with this like soon. Well, why doesn't he just do it? If he wants to give me something good, here I am. Just do it. Make me, you know, hocus pocus or like Jeannie. We love Jeannie. Right? She uh, loved that show because Barbara Eden was, all us young guys had the hots for Barbara Eden. But, you know, Jeannie, you just tell her to do whatever. It's the same thing with God, right? And why doesn't he just do it? All right, you're in Psalm. Go to Psalm 35. God delights in showing us himself. And one of the things he's going to show us is his greatness. God's greatness. God delights to demonstrate his greatness. Do we believe that he's going to show us how great he is so that we'll completely depend upon him? Do we believe that we can even see it? I mean, it must be totally absorbing. I'm listening to this book about the Apollo 11 mission, and uh, uh, there's a couple of chapters about the astronauts. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, the other guy was a substitute. I think his name was Collins. And... uh, you know, there's this running idea that they're all hard drinking, partying, flying at the seat of their pants kind of guys. But they're they're not. They're all nerdy, nerdy, ultra nerdy engineers who were test pilots in the military. So not only are they nerdy, they follow orders. That's one of the reasons why they went to the military to get astronauts, because they'll say, yes, sir, you know. And... Uh, and so, but what they're so nerdy and mathematical and scientific 
that when the press, the press says, you know, they get questions and they hate these questions, but the press is like, so you went to the moon. How was it? And these guys are not poets. They're engineers. And so the response is, they go, oh, gee, it was great. That's it. Next question. Poets, they're not. They're like, oh, yeah, wow. One of the guys was asked, how does it feel up there? And he's like, feel? What does it matter what I feel? What I want to know is what velocity are we at? What's our altitude? How, you know, uh, what's the angle of approach? What's the temperature in the vessel? Where are we? You know, it's, he wants data. He doesn't care how he feels. I mean, that's good for astronauts, right? But it's actually not good for Christianity. We need the data. The data is, you know, biblical data. That's what this is, data. But the data's got to be converted. And it's not all emotion, because in some circles of Christianity, it's all emotion and there's no data. But you need the data. You need every single word of it. But the Word has got to become a reality because this is a life. And it's way more than flying through the stars. It's flying at the speed of Christ. That's a terrible analogy. But it's flying <laughs> to boldly go where no man has gone before. That's also a wrong. That's wrong. That's Jim Kirk. But um, it is really living a life that Christ lived who came from heaven to earth. It is truly flying. And and you've got to commit your whole life to it. It can't be a partial thing. Isn't this so true? I mean, it's in James. John writes it. He says, a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Period. You can't keep your friendship with the world and do this. You can be a Christian, absolutely, and keep your friendship with the world. I am a full believer in the carnal Christian. I am not a lordship salvation guy. Because if I was, I'd, I'd have to quit, because then I'd not be a saved person. But I believe in the carnal Christian. You can be a Christian and be a friend with the world. You cannot live eternal life now and experience it. And be a friend of the world. You can't. So look at Psalm 35, 27. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication or my justice. And we say, yeah, we cannot wait. We'll see that when we get back to 2 Thessalonians, that the promise is that when God returns, they're going to get it. Meaning, those who have rejected him and are persecuting the church. Let them shout for joy and rejoice who favor my vindication. And let them say continually, the Lord be magnified. See that? What is Christianity? Theocentric. Christocentric. It's about one person. It's about Christ. It's not about me. I'm not in the middle. That's why this demands faith. Because I can't do anything. I'm not in the middle. He is. And so my faith in him, my faith in his way, my faith in that mustard seed moves mountains. But I don't move the mountains. As he said, you have this faith of a mustard seed, you'll tell that mountain to be cast into the sea. I'm not moving physical mountains. That is a way of him saying that God, I myself will move the mountains out of your life that are obstructing your view of me. I will move them. That addiction, that favorite sin, that bitterness you keep falling into, that person that you can't forgive, that enemy that you can't love, I am going to move that obstacle. And you are going to love your enemies. And you are going to be cured. And you are going to be powerful with me. And then you will see me. Actually, simultaneously as you see me. But the obstacles have got to get out of the way. So, as this, uh, the second line there in verse 27, let them continually, continually say, the Lord be magnified. That's uh, also the word is great. 
let the, the Lord be great. And notice, who delights in the prosperity of his servant. The Lord be magnified. It is God's delight that we see, or sorry, it is God's delight that we need to find meaningful and not our own. That's a great statement. So I'll repeat it a few times. It is God's delight that we need to find, not our own. What is the pursuit of man? His own delight. Same for us as believers. Don't we fall into it so easily? We want our delight. <clears throat> as James said in James chapter 4, you, 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 uh, you lust and you do not have because you want to spend it on your own pleasures. James 4. And there's nothing wrong with pleasure as long as it comes from the proper source. Christocentric, not me-centric. Or anthropocentric. It's not man-centric. <clears throat> it is God's delight that we need to find meaningful, not our own. And so, antithetical to the world, the world says, and this is a thing of faith, right? So it's about faith again. Uh, the big. This is a huge lesson for us because we're all born in a world that is man-centered. We've grown up in this world that's man-centered, and people pursue their own delights. I mean, you aren't we told this? You got to grab it. If you're going to get it, you got to grab it. But this is antithetical to Christianity. Well, so and so we fear it. We fear it. We aren't going to do it. Uh, you know, how will we look to the world if we say, you know what, I'm not going to pursue my own pleasure. I'm going to pursue Christ. That's what I do. And people are going to mock you for it. And it's one of the things that stop us from doing it is we, we think into in our own soul what are the consequences are going to be and we conclude to ourselves that the consequences are too much. And so I'm not going to pursue that and we miss out. What God is pursuing us with is to change our hearts into this. Because we find out that when we find Christ, we find prosperity. Right? He delights. Again, last line of verse 27. Who delights in, or God delights in the prosperity of his servant. God so delights in our welfare that he gave us his son. The Son came into the world to tear down the obstacle that kept us in the desert land of want. Right? That's, you know, there's a reason why God sent the Exodus through the wilderness. They're not to stay in the wilderness. If they stay in the wilderness, they die. And that's what happened to a great many of them. But they're promised the promised land, which is a land flowing with milk and honey. That, that's our land. And so God pursues us in this. So, Christ came to remove the obstacle. Now we have at our disposal, it's low-hanging fruit. It's God's blessing. How do we get it? Well, you don't. You just believe it. It'll come to you. Believe and Say, well, well, hold on. I believe and then i got to do a bunch of stuff, Right? Well, your faith, faith isn't faith if it doesn't have action to it. If I just assent to something's right, but I don't commit to it, that's not faith. Faith means that I agree with God, and, and what is invisible to me is visible. It is real. It is tangible. And so when God says love, I'm going to love. And not like the Old Testament love, which was... You know, not not too shabby, we would say. But uh, our New Testament is love like Christ's love. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So through Christ, God showed us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.7 God violently threw the floodgates open so that we could look into the mirror of the glory of God and be so transformed. I say violently because the means by which he threw the floodgates open was the cross. 
violent, but effective and final. God loves to show off His greatness to us. He takes weak people like us and builds us up. He delights, as we see here, in the welfare of His servants. Philippians 4.9, And my God will supply all your needs according to the riches of His grace in Christ Jesus. Do we believe it? God will supply all my needs. Well, you know, when we say needs, do we mean just food and shelter? Food, water, and shelter? Clothes? Well, you know, as a believer, i got a lot more needs than that. I need to be happy. I need to love. I need to be at peace. I need to overcome. I need to be strong. I need to pray. I need to be in communication with God all day. I have a lot of needs, in fact, and they're very important ones. It's not just food. Actually, Christ said, don't even worry about that. Pursue the kingdom of God. There's your need and, and his righteousness. God will supply all your needs. So God is here, and Paul, in the context of this letter to the Philippians, this is much, much more than logistical needs. So do we believe it? And if we did, whether we do or we don't, it's manifested in our lives. So transition here, just as we wrap up, think about the humanity of Christ in particular. It says, and this makes sense, this is my beloved son, From heaven, right? Christ gets baptized. He comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him. John the Baptist sees the whole thing. And they hear it. A voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved Son. God identifies him. In whom I'm well pleased. God affirms him. The Father is pleased with the Son. Why is the Father pleased with the Son? You say, well, he was a good little boy. He was a good Jew. (laughs) A little more than that. When the father looked at the son, what did the father see? I love this point. This is kind of it's a different take for me. What did the father see when he looked at his son? He saw himself. Ah, it gives me goosebumps. The father. Now I'm talking. You know, up in heaven, Father, Son, they're co-equal, co-eternal, all that Trinity definition stuff. But we're talking about the humanity of Christ who empties himself of his deity and is truly human. Human as we are, without sin. And the Father looks at that human being and the Father sees himself. So, he's pleased. The Father saw his own self reflected back at him in the countenance of Christ. And that is a beautiful person. No matter what he looked like physically. And the same is true of us. See, through the cross, Christ tore with his bare hands, this man who lived his entire life in the will of the Father, without sin, with his bare hands tore down the wall. That's called reconciliation, propitiation, all those great terms that refer to the cross. Propitiation is the fact that the justice of the Father is satisfied with the work of the Son. Christ satisfied the justice of the Father. He perfectly did it. He tore it down. With His bare hands, tore down the wall that separated us from the infinite blessing of God. And then, He says of us, we all, Paul writes, but we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Christ has made it so that we look like the Father in how we love, how we act, how we talk, how we think, how we live. 
And how do we do it? Well, certainly not by our own work. In this passage in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we look or behold in the mirror the glory of the Lord. We do that by faith. You know, I could, I could have the whole Bible memorized and I could know all the words in here, but if I don't mix it with faith, I don't know what this says. I'm not looking in a mirror, I'm looking in a book. But when I mix faith with this, then this comes alive, as it should. And now I'm not looking at ink on a paper, but I'm actually looking at the face of the Son of God. And then... That, if I look at that, it has the effect on me of, as it says here, being transformed into the same image. The structure of this sentence shows us that, as we're, because we're going to see this when we look at love, as I'm looking at the mirror, I'm being transformed. They happen at the same time. The more I look into the mirror, the more I'm transformed. And that is done by faith. And so the last promise which I need to get to is I will plant in them the land. I will plant them in the land. Of course, that's to Israel. But to us, the land of the promised land would represent our maturity. And I'm going to do that with all my heart and soul. All my heart and soul. And the Lord Jesus Christ did this just for... uh, to squeeze in here one reference in John 17 in our Lord's Prayer. John 17:22, the glory, the Lord prays to the Father, the glory which you've given me, I have given to them. Think about that. You know, we pass it by, I think. I don't know. I guess I do. I'll say that I do. And I'm guilty of this. And I'll pass it by and say, yeah, that's there's that Bible verse. Instead of stopping and saying, think about that. The glory the very Lord Jesus Christ has, which he says here, you, Father, gave to me because he followed the Father's will. You gave it to me, and I have given it to them, that they may be one as we are one. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. Are you too unworthy for this? Are you too guilty of sin? Is your sin too great? Is it? Has not the Lord taken your judgment from you? Are you surrounded by enemies who will persecute you if you live for Christ alone? There's some people who are like that, especially in other countries. Do you think that the persecution is too much to handle? Did the Lord not say, vengeance is mine, I will repay, that he will vanquish all your enemies? Do you think you're too far away from him? That you're too small, insignificant, and unimportant? Didn't he tell us that he would leave the 99 and go get the one? And to consider that five sparrows are sold for a cent? And you're way more valuable than they are. In Isaiah 57.15, I dwell in a high and holy place, says God, and also with a contrite and lowly in spirit. I dwell in a high and holy place. It's an understatement. This is God who fills the universe. But, and also with the contrite and lowly in spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What is stopping us from giving all of our thoughts and ways and loves and desires to God? What is stopping you? What's stopping me? There's something in there. I I mean, I know the answer is me, but what is it? Do we ask God? Do we go to Him in prayer? Do we contemplate it? When I say that out loud, I don't do it enough. God is at the center of Christianity. Not us. Believe. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Your Word. Thank You for the faith that You have given us so that we can grow in your grace and knowledge. Thank you for the Son who has torn down the wall that separates us from you. And may we, by faith, go to you in prayer. Find out, Father, in specifics. Ask specifically, each of us should, what is holding us back from giving you everything. 
so that we may do so, Father, and truly live. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.